In 2017, an Alberta provincial court judge was removed from the bench by the Canadian Judicial Council. In 2014, the judge had berated a female sexual assault complainant in his court with condescending, humiliating, and disrespectful remarks. The council concluded that the judge's conduct was, and I quote, so manifestly and profoundly destructive of the concept of the impartiality, integrity, and independence of of the judicial role that public confidence had been sufficiently undermined to render the judge incapable of executing the judicial office. Now that's a long mouthful. In other words, the judge proved unworthy of his judgeship. He proved unworthy of the moral vigilance and high character that his office merited. Notice that my focus is on the worth of the office, not on the worth of the man. The value of the office should have kept the judge from desecrating it. The greatness of his calling should have constrained him to lead a life worthy of his call. But it didn't. And now the public has much less regard not only for the irresponsible cavalier judge, but also for the office. In Ephesians 4.1, Paul tells us about another calling. It's not a calling as a judge in a court of law. It's a calling as sons and daughters of the living God and as members of the body of Christ. Paul tells us that we're to walk worthy of our spiritual calling. Choosing to maintain unity with one another in Christ's body is an important aspect of our calling. And as Margaret mentioned just a few moments ago, we're focusing this morning upon one another verses in the New Testament that deal with unity. We're doing this as a part of our current sermon series, which we're wrapping up today. Approximately one-third of all the one another commands in the New Testament relate to the topic, topic of unity within the church. Our focal passage today is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. There we read, I, therefore, this is Paul talking, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. In these verses, Paul reveals three important truths about walking worthy of our calling. First, Paul reminds us of the nature of of our calling, the nature of our calling. Well, how does Paul achieve this? He does so in one word. Talk about uh, concise communication. In verse 1, we find the word, therefore. When I was a boy, I learned that when you see a therefore, you should always ask what the therefore is there 
4. Therefore is a word that always serves as a link. It points to what was previously communicated and links that information with what follows. We could just as easily insert the words because of or since in place of the word therefore. Well, in this case, Paul is referring, he's not referring to just the verse or the few verses that precede precede verse 1. He's referring to everything that he said up to this point in the letter. He's referring to all the theological realities found and discussed in chapters 1 to 3. Well, what theological realities do we find about our calling in these earlier chapters. Let's take a quick look. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, we learn that God chose us for himself before the world was even created. In chapter 1, verse 3, we see that God predestined us to be his children, heirs of the one who owns everything. In chapter 1, verse 7, we learn that God sent his only son to die as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In chapter 1, verse 13, uh, we are told that God has sealed us with his Holy Spirit forever. In chapter 1, verse 18, we learn that we have been called to hope to a future that is wonderful and glorious. In chapter 2, verse 4, we see that God made us alive when we were spiritually dead. In chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we are told God graciously gave us faith to believe. And in chapter 2, verse 10, we see that God gave us a purpose to do good works. Well, if we rolled all of these theological realities into a single sentence, we could say this about our calling. God the Father has called us, he's called you and me, to belong to him, to be part of his holy people, and to join in his cosmic plan for restoring humanity to relationship with himself and to renew all of creation. Why? So that God and his son, Jesus Christ, might be glorified for the wonderful, all-powerful, all-knowing, exalted, beautiful, loving, perfectly good and gracious being that he is. Paul is not saying, try harder to walk worthy of your calling. Try harder to please God. Try harder to obey Him. Try harder to keep the peace and get along with one another. No. He's saying, in light of, because of, with regards to all that God has done for you, let your response be a response of love that causes you to live your life in a manner worthy of the calling God has given you. It's all about our response to what God has done for us. Well, as we've just learned, Paul first reminds us in this passage of the nature of our calling. Second, Paul reveals four attitudes necessary to engage in our calling. In verse 2 we read, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. The first attitude necessary to engage in our calling is humility. The Greek word translated humility means lowliness, of mind as opposed to pride 
or haughtiness. In the first century Greco-Roman worldview, lowliness of mind was the attitude of slaves. It was considered crude, inappropriate, and undesirable. Humility wasn't considered a virtue. It was something to be avoided. The Greco-Roman concept of a full, meaningful life left no room for humility. Conversely, the Old Testament and Judaism viewed humility positively. The best example of true humility is found in Jesus himself. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, we read, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because humility was a virtue for Christ, and because we're called to follow in his steps, humility is an essential part of Christian character. Humility is also a natural response when we perceive the greatness, the glory, the holiness of God while at the same time recognizing our own sinfulness and weakness. The second attitude needed to walk worthy of our calling is gentleness. Gentleness is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Gentleness, or meekness, is for the most part a forgotten virtue these days. Guys, uh, we particularly, I believe, struggle uh, with this word Few men strive to be known as a gentle guy. When we hear the word gentle, we're likely to to envision a female, perhaps a mom, holding her baby very tenderly. But gentleness has nothing to do with being feminine or motherly. The Greek word for gentleness often described an animal of strength, such as a horse, that was completely disciplined and controlled. The horse was broken, and the horse would do whatever its master asked of it. The Greek word for gentleness is connected with a spirit of submissiveness. Just as the horse is submissive to his master when, it, when it's broken, uh, we, the, this word is talking about being submissive toward others. Gentleness toward others is bred by cultivating a submissive heart toward God. The third attitude necessary to walk worthy of our calling is patience. It means slowness in avenging wrong or choosing not to retaliate when hurt by another. Where have we heard that before? Remember our our series, A City on a Hill, from the Sermon on the Mount? Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? It's used to describe, this word patience is used to describe God's patience with us, with humanity, numbers of times throughout the word. Because God is patient with us, we should demonstrate patience toward others. The fourth century church father, John Chrysostom, explained this Greek word as meaning to have a wide and big soul. Patience is the exercise of a largeness of soul that can endure annoyances and difficulties. The fourth attitude needed to walk worthy of our calling is bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another means putting up with each other. The Christian life 
is a life of putting up with other people. And this tolerance finds its ability and motivation in love. Bearing with one another doesn't mean failing to speak the truth in love, even when it hurts. It doesn't mean failing to confront sin. And it doesn't mean failing to hold one another accountable. It does mean choosing to overlook petty irritations and avoiding majoring on the minors. Bearing with one another is well served by the motto, some of you I know have heard this before, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. By the way, that's, that means love. We don't use charity too much exactly in that term anymore. Such bearing with one another as well as all four attitudes are possible only in love. Love is the basic attitude of seeking the highest good of others. Love enables and empowers all four attitudes. Agape, the Greek word used here for love, is not a feeling or an emotion, but an act of the will. Agape is always costly. Agape doesn't have its origin in human motivation. It's a choice made because of the love of God. Did you notice the one another in in this verse? Bearing with one another. As we've learned over the past month, Christians are a part of each other and are to receive one another, to think about one another, to serve one another, to love one another, to build up one another, to bear each other's burdens, to submit to one another and encourage one another as we learned last week through the example of Barnabas. Christianity is a God-directed, Christ-defined, others-oriented religion. Only with such direction away from self do we find life and lasting fulfillment. Well, so far, we've noted that Paul reminds us of the nature of our calling, and he reveals four attributes needed to engage in our calling. He also reveals an action necessary to live out our calling. In verse 3, he says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. To walk worthy worthy of our calling as sons and daughters of God and as members of Christ's body, we must make every effort to maintain, to preserve the unity of the Spirit. The Greek word translated eager isn't a passive term. It signifies significant effort to be zealous for. You say, Kent, What is the unity of the Spirit? Is Paul talking about uniformity? Is he advocating making nice, never voicing an opinion? The answer to these questions is no. The unity of the Spirit is the connectedness, community, and common purpose that the Holy Spirit gives and brings among those in whom He dwells. Unity of the Spirit is not something we create. It's based on the oneness of God and the oneness of the Gospel. As Christians, we must maintain the unity of the Spirit because everything that we hold of any significance, we hold together with others. Notice in verse 3 that our unity as believers is held together through the bond of peace. 
In Colossians 3.14, we learn that love is the bond of perfection that keeps the body of Christ together. Well, what is the basis for our unity? In the last three verses of the passage, in verses 4 to 6, Paul presents seven realities that serve as a theological foundation for our unity. By the way, in the Bible, seven is a number that represents perfection. Each of these seven theological realities is preceded by the word one, O-N-E. In each case, the oneness tells us that the reality is unique and foundational in nature. Well, where does he start? He says, there is one body. There are not several bodies of Christ in different locales, but one body of Christ. Each local congregation is representative of Christ's body. If you've submitted to Christ's lordship, then you're a member of one and the same body, the body of Christ. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or Gentile, a man or a woman. It doesn't matter the color of your skin, your social, economic, or educational status. If you've made Jesus your Lord, you're a member of the body of Christ, and there's only one body. There is one Spirit. When a person chooses to believe in Jesus as the Son of God, the Bible says the Holy Spirit comes to live inside you. Spiritually, he or she is born again and made spiritually alive. He or she now has access to and communion with God, just as we experienced earlier when we were praying for a kid's night out. There is one hope, the new hope, the sure hope of being with God in His presence forever. Paul prayed that the Ephesian believers might know, that they might experience the hope to which they had been called. There is one Lord. In the world, there are many lords. In the first century, Caesar was proclaimed Lord. In medieval times, the king of the land was Lord. Today, self is Lord. Sentiments like, I'm the master of my own fate. No one has the right to tell me what to believe. Belie this worship of self. In Christianity, there's one Lord. It's not self. It's the God-man, Jesus Christ. Each one of us in the body has only one head, Jesus. To confess Him as Lord assumes that we've surrendered, that I've surrendered total control of my life to Him. There is one faith. This could refer to the act of believing the gospel, but more likely it refers to the content of what we believe. The good news that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. There is one baptism. This reality has two possible meanings. Paul is likely referring to our being baptized by the Spirit into Christ. Throughout his letters, Paul teaches that it's the Holy Spirit who baptizes all Christians into the body of Christ. But the phrase one baptism can also refer to water baptism. Water baptism is the outward sign that we've been joined to Christ. It's a symbol that our old man has died, that we are a new creation in Christ. Jesus commanded all who believe in him to be baptized 
as a public confession of their faith in Him. Lastly, but not least, there's one God and Father of us all who is over all and through all and in all. This is a clear reference to the Shema, the Old Testament confession that Yahweh is one. It's a reminder that our oneness is anchored in the oneness of God Himself. (coughs) Excuse me. These seven realities provide a theological foundation for the unity that God tells us to diligently and eagerly preserve. We've noticed that in challenging us to walk worthy of our spiritual calling, Paul reminds us of the nature of our calling, reveals four attitudes needed to engage in our calling, and asserts the necessity of unity to live out our calling. But we can err in one of two ways regarding this challenge to walk worthy of our calling. One error is to believe that we can walk worthy of our calling through our own effort, through our own hard work, through attempting to meet God's standard. We become like the Christians, like the believers at Galatia. They started their journey by faith, but someone told them they must work hard to keep the law. So they started focusing upon not what Christ had done for them, but how they could earn God's favor. They went back to trying to keep the law's demands. But Paul said to them this. He said, if you try to be made right with God through the law, your life with Christ is over. You have left God's grace. He said earlier in Ephesians, in the the book we're in right now, today, I mean that you have been saved by grace through believing. You did not save yourselves. It was a gift from God. It was not the result of your own efforts. So you cannot brag about it. You will never be made right with God through your own efforts. If this is you this morning, the Spirit is saying, stop, give up. Yield. Go back to the first three chapters of Ephesians and allow the Holy Spirit to reveal to you your true identity in Christ, your calling from God. If you've made Jesus Christ your Lord, you are God's son or his daughter. He chose you. He loves you. He has transferred you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You're a new creation. As you focus on your new identity and thank God for what he's done, you will find freedom and empowerment to respond to his love by walking worthy of your calling. The other heir we can make is to treat God's calling lightly. Those guilty of this here protest that no one can actually live worthy of God's calling and we must be on guard for the trap of legalism and perfectionism. But we go too far. We fool ourselves that we can follow Christ without taking up our cross. That we can be a disciple without discipline. That religious activity will suffice for obedience. In this case, our problem is that we don't care that we've been given a billion
million dollar salvation, we muster only a five cent response. The truth is that we're unimpressed with what God has done for us. The wonder of God's provision has either never dawned in your heart or somehow it's lost its edge. God's calling has become commonplace, even ho-hum to you. You may know the right answers, but those answers haven't traveled the 12 inches from your head to your heart. You're like the judge we spoke of earlier who disregarded the greatness and significance of his calling. If this is you today, the Spirit calls you to repent, to turn, to remember what Christ has done for you, to embrace humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love, to eagerly maintain, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. God the Father has called you to belong to Him, to be part of His holy people, and to join in His cosmic plan for restoring humanity to relationship with Himself and to renew all of creation. Let us, let us, let us walk worthy of our calling. Let's pray. Just in the quietness, I want to invite you just to continue to listen to the Spirit of God as He speaks to you and to me right now about what is it specifically that He's saying to us this morning in these moments and what do we need to do about it? How do we need to respond? Let's listen to Him. Father, I thank you that by your Spirit you are so accurate in pinpointing in our hearts and our lives um, what we need to hear from you, whether that is words of love and encouragement and, and, and uh, words, of, words of care, or whether that's words of challenge, words of rebuke, words of correction. Lord, all your words are from you and they're all bathed in love. They're all bathed in a desire for us to experience 
the fullness of life and to fulfill the calling that you have placed upon us. And Lord, you know that's the only way that we can really be uh, satisfied, that we can be fulfilled when we fulfill the, for the purposes for which we were made. Lord, for those here this morning that may be um, overachievers, they're maybe perfectionists, and their mindset is, Lord, I'm never good enough, and I've got to try harder, and I've I got to make this work, and I've got to do this, and Lord, you're not pleased with me, and on and on and on it goes. I pray that this morning, that by your Spirit, you would simply remind us of what you have done for us in Jesus the fact that we are your son or your daughter and that you love us and nothing we could ever do would cause you to love us more or to love us less. And Lord, I pray that we would just be able to settle into that reality, that we'd be able to receive that identity and Lord, then walk in it where our life is simply a response to, to your love. Lord, for those here this morning that may be found on the other side of the pendulum swing and you're speaking to to us about lord um, not taking your calling seriously of just being lackadaisical of just being ho-hum about what you've done and about what you have called us to be and to do i pray that this morning that lord that we would hear your challenge and that we would respond to you that that we would repent, that we would turn. And Lord, that we would recognize and we would, we would see the high calling that you called us to. And we'd recognize that as we respond to that, we will find what we're really looking for. We will find life. Lord, others of us here have other things going on in our lives and maybe neither one of those things is our deepest need. You know what it is this morning and you're speaking to us about it. You're saying to us, I'm here I want you to experience my grace this morning. And Father, I pray for those of us here who are, who are in that position. God, I thank you that you're so good at giving us exactly what we need if we will open our heart, if we will humble ourselves before you, and if we will trust you. So God, help each one of us to do that in these moments. We thank you for your words of life today. And we thank you for your help to live them out, to walk worthy of our calling. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to close our service.